Please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. In your bulletin insert, there is the passage we'll be covering today, James 5, 1 to 6, and a place for you to follow along, take notes if you care to. As we've been working through the book of James, we've seen that James has called us to bear fruit that demonstrates our faith. What is the test of our faith is whether it's genuine will be determined whether there are fruits that come in your life. And that the salvation that we have is not of works. The salvation is given to us as a gift. You have been born again, James tells us in chapter 1, born of the Spirit, born by God's powerful work in you, not because of your work on His behalf. So clearly, every week as I uh, bring the book of James and its exhortations, I have to lay for you again this gospel foundation. It's not your works that save you. It's Christ's work that has saved you. And if He has done a work in your heart, it's going to demonstrate by the way you live. It's going to bear fruit in your life. And as we've been looking through the book of James, we've seen a certain style that is similar to the Old Testament wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs. And some people will call James as the Proverbs of the New Testament. And so we love getting this wisdom from the Lord. We love hearing this instruction, this wisdom, this, this deep insight into the practical ways that we should live out our faith. This chapter takes a bit of a turn. This chapter, the style and tone of chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, takes on the tone of not wisdom literature so much as prophetic, as an oracle from, the God, from God. When prophets would speak in the Old Testament, they would receive a word from the Lord, and then they would give it to the people. This is the word from God for you. And sometimes it was a prophecy of blessing and of goodness and of joy. Those were uh, termed prophecies of weal, goodness, blessing. But there were also then oracles of woe. And those woe articles are judgments. Those prophecies of your wickedness has been seen by God and it's going to be judged. And this very passage in chapter 5 really has that tone. At the end of chapter 4, if you remember last time, there was a, a mild rebuke for presumptuous planning. Uh, come now, you shouldn't say, I'm going to go to that's, that's a city and do this trade and make this money. That, that's presumptive. Don't do that, James says. That's kind of the tone. Hey, don't go there. But this chapter has a hard-hitting prophecy, oracle from the Lord. There's literary markers here to help us with another debate. Christians have long debated whether James is giving this, this oracle to pagan, non-believing rich people who are persecuting the audience that James is actually writing to, or whether James is writing to genuine Christians who are practicing such reprehensible things when it comes to money and wealth. And so, Arguments have been made from literary context to other factors, word usages in James and elsewhere. And so there's many hermeneutical principles at play. I think as I come down to it and have kind of weighed the evidence, the, the hermeneutical principle that I'm following is if the shoe fits, wear it. So I, I think what James is saying here is a warning to if you call yourself a Christian and you're acting this way, watch out. If you're not a Christian, 
and you're acting this way, you're in big trouble. And so, the message for us as believers, whether we're acting this way or we're not, is that God will bring certain judgment. God takes this matter so seriously. And the fact that this is in the tone of a prophecy or an oracle, I want to give it the seriousness that it deserves and how I read it. So, follow along as I read James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold, your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last day. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fatten your hearts in the day of slaughter. You condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this hard-hitting passage. I pray that You would help us to, to see and to hear from You. Lord, that if we are guilty in any way, that You would convict us. And Lord, it's easy for us to think of ourselves as not rich. Easy for us to think of ourselves as not in that class of people that's being called out. But Lord, uh, we just confess we are. We know that we are rich in so many ways compared to uh, the people in the first century that James was writing to. We're rich in so many ways compared to the other parts of this world, even other parts of this country, Lord. We truly are. And so, Lord, I pray that our attitude towards our wealth and finances would be before you today, and I pray that you would speak to us. Speak words of conviction where needed. Speak words of comfort where we need those comforting words from you. Pray that you would speak to us by your word in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I think as a young person, I was fascinated with the show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And I was thinking about that in terms of this passage, and I knew that a certain segment of you with more of this gray hair than not would probably remember that show because it didn't last all that long. So I didn't know if that would be the right uh, way to, to, to get us thinking about riches and, and how super affluent people are really in danger of, of, of judgment. Uh, some of you follow uh, royalty and extreme wealth in the United Kingdom and Britain, and, and some of the, the shows that you'll see showing you how much uh, elegance and, and power and money is tied up in, in some of those families from generation after generation. That, that, would, that would resonate with you. But I didn't have to go very far uh, just yesterday. Uh, there was an article in Forbes magazine that said, Barbie officially becomes this year's highest grossing movie in the world. Barbie brought in $1.36 billion at the global office, about edging past Super Mario Brothers movie at a $135 billion grossing figure. Two movies in short proximity 
one 136 billion, the other 135, 1.35 billion. The global top spot was secured by Barbie a little more than a week after it secured $575 million in the U.S. and top Mario Brothers in the domestic box office. A crowning moment for Barbie also arrived after the pink-soaked adventure comedy became the highest-grossing movie in Warner Brothers history, overtaking Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part Two. Does that say something about our culture, what we value, what we think is important? Well, just a couple weeks ago, American country folk singer Oliver Anthony released Rich Men North of Richmond. The song became an overnight viral hit and gaining traction on social media. Within days of its release, it topped sales and streaming charts and then debuted at number one on the Billboard Hot 100, making Anthony the first artist to debut debut atop the chart without any prior chart history in any form. Why did this song hit, hit such a chord? Why does this movie speak to our culture in ways that are profound? Well, let's listen to the words of this song edited for Sunday usage. And if you're laughing, it's because you listened to it in the original form. But I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for barely any pay so I can sit out here and waste my life away, drag back home and drown my troubles away. It's a real shame that the world's gotten to for people like me and people like you Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Oh, it is. Living in the new world with an old soul, these rich men north of Richmond, Lord knows they all want to have total control. Want to know what you think, want to know what you do, and they don't think you know, but I know that you do because your dollar ain't nothing and it's taxed to no end because of rich men north of Richmond. Lord, it's a real shame that this world's gotten to for people like me and people like you. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Oh, it is. Our culture's filled with so many messages about rich men and what they can do. Messages about what is the good life, what is success, what we should do with our wealth and our possessions, and even how they're used how they're abused, and how wealth is used to abuse others. But we have a clear message. We have a direct message. We have an oracle from God that gives us what He says and how we should live. Since God is serious about faithfulness in our finances, we must take an honest look at the way that we view and use our wealth. In these six verses... We're going to hit some hard-hitting challenges, some hard-hitting rebukes that James brings. And it starts in verses 1 through 3 with this command, quit hoarding your money. Instead, you should practice stewardship. Verse 1, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver has corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire, for you've laid up treasure in the last days. The way that in the ancient world that people would accumulate wealth and, and 
hold on to that wealth was through buying of garments, uh, uh, luxurious garments, and of collecting precious metals, gold, silver. And so as James uses these clothes and these metals as signs of wealth, the condemnation that, they, the, that the people get for the way that they're using those is that they're going to be moth-eaten and that they're going to corrode. And that these things, which you put so much value in, even this little insect is able to make worthless. And this metal that you think is so precious is going to corrode. It's going to rust. And it's going to be evidence. It's going to be evidence that you have put your trust in this money. You have put your, your, your hope in this money. You get comfort from it. You derive fulfillment from having it. And it will eat your flesh like fire. Because you've laid up treasure in the last days. You've heard this phrase before, the last days. In these last days. And in the New Testament context, it's the fulfillment of everything that was prophesied in the Old Testament that a Messiah would come and that He would Himself set up God's kingdom. He ushered in God's kingdom, Jesus, in His first coming, but He came to not take over the earth, but to win for His Father the souls of those that were given to Him. He went to become the offering for us, to be a sacrifice, to lay down His life. And in His first coming, His kingdom is already here, but it's yet to come. It's, it's not yet in its complete fulfillment. And so, the New Testament authors would describe the time between Jesus' first coming and His second coming as these last days, and that Jesus is going to come again, and He's going to come to judge. And in these last days, the commands concerning the earthly life, these temporal things, the world's riches. Why are you going to hold on to these things when Jesus is coming back soon? Why are you so attached to these things when Jesus will appear and it's all going to be worthless? You see, we have this hoarding that was going on. They, they're laying up this treasure. Now, this isn't the same as saving. This isn't having a bank account to insure against some catastrophes that could happen in your life. So, you would have something to fall back on if the furnace goes out or if something tragic happens in your life. It's not talking about putting aside money so that you can have something to actually buy ca- with cash rather than just putting it on the credit card. Do you know that people used to do that? They would save money and then they would, okay, I don't have to get into that. The, the, the saving of money isn't the problem. It's the, the hoarding it up and the taking it out of kingdom use, in fact. We see that Jesus gave a warning in Luke chapter 12. And we touched on this a bit when we saw at the end of chapter 4, James 4, the idea of presumptuous planning, to try and uh, to make plans assuming that God's going to do this or that. And that was, that was discouraged. We should look if the Lord wills or if not. But we, we looked at Luke 12 where Jesus says about the man who built new barns because he had all this produce. He said, I'll say, the, the man said, I'll say to my soul, soul, I have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This is not the mentality of somebody in the last days. We can't have this eat, drink, and be merry mentality. Verse 20, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? 
For so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Okay, so, so, so laying up treasure in these last days, one of the indications that it's, it's sinful and it's hoarding it is that you've laid it up for yourself and you're not rich towards God. This is all about me. You see, how we use our treasure, how we lay up treasure, indicates how our heart is. James, his brother Jesus, said in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, Jesus isn't saying about how much the treasure is. He, he isn't giving it a dollar figure. He's just saying your attitude towards wealth and possessions is really what's going to indicate what's in your heart. Has this become a treasure for you? Has this become so important? Has this been an end-all and be-all issue? It's, it's no longer a tool for God to use for His kingdom, but it's become something that you are using for yourself. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Commentator on this passage, Craig Blomberg, said, Unused wealth does the kingdom no good and condemns those who refuse it to use it to, who refuse to use it for God. Those garments the rotting, uh, the, 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 the precious metals are corroding. It's doing no good. Luke 16, we see that Jesus tells this uh, account of Lazarus, a poor man, a beggar, and a rich man. And do you remember how Jesus paints this picture? He says, the poor man died. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water that it may cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. This is what will be the result for those who heap up, lay themselves this treasure that this will be evidenced against us and it will eat up our flesh like fire. Our view of eternity is going to affect how we live for today. This eschatological view of the last days, what is really going to matter in eternity is going to reflect now. Most Sundays when I preach, I'll walk through the cemetery just to kind of clear my head, to talk to the Lord, and to just take stock of what is really ultimate in life? What is really important in life? And there are no stockpiles of riches by each of those headstones. There have been no U-Hauls behind any hearse that has come into that, that area since I've been here. The fact is that what we accumulate in this world, in this life, what we've, what we what our bank account says and, and what our uh, storage places contain is not going to make it with us when we face the judge of the earth. You can't take it with you. Your view of your stuff needs to be shaped by what God describes 
as a honorable view, as a right view. And that's really biblical stewardship. Stewardship fundamentally is saying you don't own anything. Everything that you've been given is a gift from God. It's not yours. You're a manager of that. So treat it as you are managing it, not that it belongs to you. You see that difference. And that difference shows in the way that you treat it, the way that you use it, the way that you cling to it. And so as we understand biblical stewardship, it it makes a difference in our life here and now. I remember years ago going through uh, a Bible study um, with Crown Ministries, uh, an organization that was committed to understanding what the Scripture says about how to use our finances. The Bible says so much about finances. I'd commend that to you. Understand what does the Bible teach about money and the use of it and the accumulation of it, the earning of it, what it's good for and what it's not good for, and be able to answer in your own soul, am I being biblically wise steward of what I've been gifted? Because it's not mine, and I'll give an account. Secondly, this charge comes through, as James says in verse 4, to really stop cheating and practice honesty. Behold, verse 4, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the Lord of hosts. This is a charge against the rich. In a second, we're going to see how it's also a, a comfort to those who have been misused. But the charge, and, and the charge is spoken by an inanimate object. Did you read how it, James puts it in such a, a, a picturesque way. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out. The, the money that's in your pocket that you didn't give to them, it's shouting at you. And it's not just shouting at you, but it's gotten up to the ears of God, the Lord of hosts. You see, Deuteronomy 24, 14 made it really clear. What do we do when we hire somebody to work for us? Listen, Deuteronomy 24, 14. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in the land of your, with, within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. James has said, some of you are doing that, and those wages in your pocket are crying out to the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Who is hearing these cries. It, it reminds us in Genesis 4 how, how God said that Abel's blood cried from the ground for justice. This cry has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Here's where it brings comfort. Who is the Lord of hosts? This, this name for God describes God as being the general commander over all of the angel armies, all of the host of heaven, all of these mighty warriors. And that poor worker in the field who got rolled over and taken advantage of, defrauded and used, has a hotline to the general of the army and says, I need your help. And that general will come to their aid. Psalm 140 says, 
I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted, and He will execute justice for the needy. You don't have to have power. You don't have to have wealth. You don't have to have influence. If you've been taken advantage of, you can cry out to the Lord of hosts. He hears you, and He responds. In Proverbs 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the corrupt spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of, it, out of them all. We can be comforted to know that God hears us when we've been taken advantage of. And you might not win your day in court, but there's an ultimate judgment that God will be keenly aware of your need. Instead of cheating, why don't you practice honesty? Why don't you do what is right and what is just? And on top of cheating, why don't you go to the extra extreme instead of just being honest? Be generous. When we hear the parable of the workers in the vineyard, and Jesus tells about the person who's hired at the beginning of the day, middle of the day, the end of the day, and they all get paid the same amount, right? The person who is hired at the beginning of the day, worked the whole day through, says, why didn't you give me more? You gave them the same amount. They only worked one hour. That's not fair. Grace isn't fair, but grace is grace. You've been given what you have earned and then some. God gives beyond. He doesn't give in our justification in line with what our works are. He is generous and kind. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for, his, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Think of this. This is spiritual riches. This is what Jesus experienced as the second person of the Godhead in all eternity, in the throne room of heaven, receiving the worship of angels day and night, crying out to Him as holy and just and righteous and worthy of all glory and praise. And He says, I'm ready to leave this rich, lavish existence to humble myself, to become poor, to be born as a servant so that I can give the life that I have of perfect obedience in exchange for these poor sinners. Poor sinners who realize that I got nothing to offer God. I'm bankrupt spiritually. But God in His mercy and grace gives me salvation and it makes me rich. Uh, God pays your debt and that's great. He doesn't just bring you up to a zero balance though. In His grace, He lavishes on you all of the riches of His perfect obedience so that by His poverty, you are made rich. It's out of our spiritual riches that then our material giving, our physical riches, should then be generously given as a response to God's grace. We shouldn't be cheating others. We should be fair. And beyond that, we should be generous with others in our gifts. Finally, verse 5 and then verse 6, we need to forsake self-indulgence and practice contentment. James says, For you, ha uh, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. That first word luxury isn't always a negative term, but definitely when the second term is coupled with it, self-indulgence, it's always negative. That you have 
taken riches, not just because you've been blessed and you've accumulated them, but now you are accumulating them and you are using them just for your own pleasure, just for your own happiness. And they become something that you are indulging in. In fact, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, even to the extent where you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. This sounds really extreme. And it probably is figuratively speaking of the treatment that is done to those who didn't resist. One commentator says, the murder here is most likely uh, judicial, whereby the wealthy landowners take smaller, poorer, indebted farmers to court, stripping them of their land and thus their source of income, and then hiring them back again to work their former property as sharecroppers. With dirt-poor wages, unpaid debts might then lead to their new landlords to throw them into debtor's prison where they, could not, where they could rot for the rest of their lives. In the Jewish world, to deprive a person of their support was the same as murdering him. As Dan Doriani explains, as before James 4.2, the murder is probably figurative, yet by withholding their wages, the rich condemn the poor to poverty, even starvation. The word condemned suggests the law court. It's, it's likely that the rich use the legal system to deprive the poor of their wages and lands. Those who have power and wealth on their side won in court, not those who had justice on their side. That only happened in the first century, right? That never happens today. People don't ever get defrauded in court or money speaks louder than justice. It's something that we face in our modern culture today. It's something that will be with us until the final day of judgment because people will continue to forsake. People will continue to indulge in luxury and self-gratification. They will shy away from contentment. Um, the book of Revelation gives us a final judgment that comes in the, in the form of uh, the judgment of Babylon the Great. In Revelation chapter 18, Babylon now represents all of the world's system of luxury, advantage, power, riches, immorality. And here what's said of Babylon and the judgment that will come after this, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Come out from her, my people, lest you take part of her sins, lest you share in her plagues. It's, it's the warning that we're given today. Don't take part of that. Don't have that mindset that Babylon sucks us into. Babylon glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like measure of torment and mourning. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand afar off and they will fear and torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. 
Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. There's the warning, and the judgment's coming. And if you're on the receiving end, it's going to be terrible. But if you've been on the misused, abused, taken advantage of by those who are rich, wealthy, and powerful, the day of judgment is coming, and you'll be comforted that justice will be served. Don't give in to this idea of, well, if you can't beat them, join them. My goal is to be as, to be as rich as I possibly can and to envy the rich, to covet what they had. Instead, 1 Timothy 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that you can have contentment and that godliness combined with it will be of a great gain for you? For we brought nothing into the world and can take nothing out of the world. See the cemetery next door. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, have pierced themselves with many pangs. One of the reasons that I, I think that James isn't just speaking to those pagan unbelievers is because Paul accounts for us that there are some believers who have been pierced through with those pangs because they've fallen prey to the idolatry of stuff, the idolatry of money and wealth and power. And pray that the Lord would make us serious, make us as deadly serious as He is about faithfulness in our finances. And that as we look at the way that we view our wealth, the way that we use our wealth, that we would in every way possible, quit from hoarding stuff and to use it faithfully in stewardship towards God, that we would stop cheating, but that we would instead practice honesty and, in fact, generosity, that we would forsake the self-indulgent lifestyle that our culture just seems to celebrate all the time and practice contentment. And do you know when we do that? When we live in that way, towards wealth and finances, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. You're going to stick out like lights in a dark world. And people will see that Christ makes a difference in people, even to the point of how they view their riches. Let's pray together. Gracious and merciful God, we thank you for this stern warning and deep comfort. We want to humble ourselves before you and recognize the risk that we face in the affluence. There are great pits all around us to fall into. The culture of affluence and materialism all around us is toxic. It's toxic to the humble way of wisdom that you call us to walk. Our wealth is too often our first thought for security, for pleasure, for comfort, for control, or for escape. Forgive us, Lord, for making a God of our money and our possessions. Lord, we repent of this idolatry. We turn to you who's the real source of our present and eternal security, the ultimate fountain of joy and comfort and peace and security. 
Lord, in a culture that's so saturated with self-indulgence, make us to stand out as lights in this great darkness. Make us long for your view of material wealth and how it can be used powerfully for your glory and your kingdom. In light of your gospel of grace, make us to live as the spiritually rich you have made us. Undeserving, bankrupt sinners, make us to live in response to your love by which you have adopted us, you have blessed us in Christ, that you have redeemed us with his blood, you've forgiven us our trespasses according to the riches of your grace, which you have lavished upon us. By the powerful working of your Holy Spirit, may it be our heartfelt prayer that we would sing with all sincerity, riches I heed not, nor vain empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and always, thou and thou only first in my heart, High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals as we prepare for the Lord's Supper to Him.